up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to pick it uh, up where I left off uh, before I was so rudely interrupted the last time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Paul, as we were reading, we're going to pick it up in verse 4 here, but Paul had just got done in uh, encouraging whoever True Yoke Fellow was to help those women, and we talked in extensively about that, who labored with him. Uh, in the gospel and who were help meets for him, you know, helping him to expand the kingdom of God there in Philippi. He mentioned Clement uh, also and others who were co-laborers with him, whose names he said were written in the book of life. Thus, he says here in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. He even repeats himself there because this is an important concept in the life of the believer. Rejoice in the Lord always. I know it seems like a no-brainer. But our rejoicing is to be in the Lord. If you're taking notes tonight, you need to underline that. Rejoice in the Lord. When my focus is on Jesus Christ and not on my circumstances, there's always cause for rejoicing. Now, that doesn't mean that the circumstance is non-existent or that it's minimal in its effect on our life. Let me tell you, my friends, I've, I had a circumstance here a week ago, and it was not fun. It was not, and it brought things that were fearful with it. It brought things that were life-changing with it. But in it, I found myself going, Lord, whatever your will is, I will rejoice in Christ. I knew this verse. I had already studied it. And man, it came in handy because all of a sudden, I found myself in a circumstance that could have easily distracted me from all that Christ has called me to do. But it didn't. The fact is, is that even with the direness of the circumstance at at one moment last week, I just said, you know what? Whatever the Lord wills, I will follow. Not because I have no choice, but because I really genuinely want to. Therefore, as I'm in that position of simply yielding to his sovereignty and his his will, aligning my will with his, man, there's there's something. Then you then you begin to rejoice in all that Christ has done and, and, and all that he wants to do through you. I can rejoice in the Lord always because in spite of me, in spite of my sin, in spite of my failures, in spite of all the times that I have failed him, not only has he never once ever failed me, but he has written my name in the Lamb's book of life. And he did that from the foundation of the world. And that I am so thankful for the Lord tonight, you know, that he's done for me all that, that, he, that he has done and, and continues to do. I will rejoice because my name is in the book of life. And if you're a child of God, you should rejoice in that too. If nothing, for nothing else, that, that, that's enough. You know, in the Seder, we sing a song, you know, it would have been enough. And even if the Lord had done all kinds of extraordinary, it would have been enough. You know, the fact that he simply wrote my name in the book, that would have been enough for me. And it certainly is enough. And it was enough for Paul to rejoice always 
in the Lord. I've often found it strange when I come across Christians who are, well, they, you know, they poor mouth God. You know, they pouty face, my, my, my wife calls them, pouty face. You know, they, they sit around, you know, they're all frowned and, and faced and always with a countenance of austereness, you know. And I can only conclude when I, when I see people like that, when, those who call themselves Christians anyway, that they are focused upon themselves. And if you're focused on yourself, I would understand why you would look frown. You should. It would be depressing. <laughs> Most of us have a mirror, you know. And boy, you know, when you're focused on yourself, it's not going to put you in a very good frame of mind, you know. Their lives have, they've allowed the circumstances of life to overwhelm them, you know, and the cares of this life to distract them. Thus, they come across as extremely serious or, or even sad. You know, I used to say that sad is actually an acronym, you know, and it, it means self-absorbance disorder. <laughs> and it can. There's no doubt about that, you know. But here the Apostle Paul is sitting in a Roman prison when he writes this. Keep this in mind. He's in the most dire of situations, having his freedom taken away from him, being chained to Roman guards, having a death sentence dangling over his head. And in what would seem to be, to most people, a hopeless situation. But what does he say? His admonition at that moment to each and every one of us, not just to the Philippians, but through the ages he knew, you know, the Lord certainly did, that it would come down to us. His admonition to us was to rejoice always in the Lord. Always means what, my friends? Always. Not just continuously, which is great, but in every way. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't allow the circumstances of this life to consume you to the point where you are distracted from the glory and the holiness of Jesus Christ. Man, I, I want to stand under that spout where the glory comes out. I want to be focused solely upon the person and the ministry and the glory and the holiness of Jesus Christ. Because when I am focused there, then I, I feel better. I, I'm, I, I, my, my joy is at its all-time high when I focus on the things of the world or on my own personal circumstances or in the ministry on the circumstances of others because they often come to us for prayer. Sometimes pastors can take that stuff on themselves and find themselves distracted uh, and consumed and finding their joy robbed, even in the midst of trying to do something good. You have to protect yourself from that. You know, you want to keep yourself in that place where you're solely focused upon the things of Jesus Christ in order that you might be able to rejoice in the Lord. Paul goes on there in verse 5, he says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Hmm. Now, when Paul was talking about moderation here, he was talking about having a lifestyle that's not given to extremes. And, and that is... Uh, extremes in behavior, extremes in attitude, 
those type of things. Uh, the word in the Greek here is epikies, and, and it, it literally means to be mild, uh, gentle, patient, uh, or as it's translated, moderate. I like the term even keeled. Uh, it's not good to have your reputation of being an extremist in any way, shape, or form, not in the things of life. It's never a good thing for someone to run from one extreme to the other. We've probably all known people like that. Um, you know, Paul said, let your moderation, that is, let your even keelness, your level-headedness in the things of the Lord be known unto all men. Another way of putting it is let your, repu- you know, as far as your reputation is, when people think about you, you know, they should think about your soundness in Christ. They, they should think about your level-headedness, your stability, if you will, your moderation. You know, sometimes people come off as just being unstable, you know, even those who claim the name of Christ. Why? Because they're given to these exaggerated things, you know, the, the way that they respond to things. Not good, Paul says. Let moderation uh, be what marks your life as far as your attitude and the way that you live. The reason you want to be level-headed is because the Lord is at hand, he said. Don't allow yourself to get too engrossed in the things of the world. Don't allow the circumstances of this life to exasperate and then exaggerate your response one way or the other. Keep a biblical head on your shoulders. Nowadays, that is more important than any other time, I think, in history. You're living in a very important time, not just in church history, but in his history. I truly believe, my friends, that we are living in the last days. I know some people will say, well, Paul believed he was living in the last days. Yes, he did, no doubt. But it would be the Apostle Paul who would also give us prophetically those things that we were to look forward to that we might know that we were living in the last days. My friends, those days, those things that he pointed to are upon us. And today, greater than any other time that we lived in, we should be walking as men and women of the Word of God, you know, with a biblical head on our shoulders, thinking with a biblical worldview. So many do not do it. They claim the name of Christ, and yet when they think, they allow the world to do their thinking for them. They allow the world to influence the way that they react to the things that are going on in the world. And they react in a worldly way. No, 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 no. That shouldn't be the case, my friends. This should never be the case for a child of God. We are to think biblically. His word is what directs us. His word is life. You know, it is spirit and it is life. And it's, it's, it is it what directs me. You know, Jesus told his own disciples one time, he said, why call ye me Lord? And do not the things that I say. You see, that's a rhetorical question. It's, it's, the answer's obvious. How can you literally call Jesus Lord? It's not his name. Lord is his designation. And it's his designation in my life if that's what I call him. And he said, why would you call me Lord if you're not going to do the things that I say? We want to be found so doing. You know, even in the book of James, his half-brother said, be a doer 
of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving your own selves. There's many people who are deceived this, this evening, my friends. Many people who claim the name of Christ. Many people will call him Lord Jesus, said there in Matthew 7. Many will come to him in that day, on the day of judgment, and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out devils in your name? And in your name, didn't we do many wonderful works? And he says, I will say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Hmm. Today, more than any other time, we need to be people of the word, people who walk with a biblical worldview, whose, whose attitude towards the Bible is that it is my director, it is my compass in this life, not only in this life, but even in my worship, in the way that I approach God. I'm going to do it according to his word. As for me in my house, I'm going, we are, we, we're going to serve the Lord, and we're going to do it according to his word. Now more than any time, my friend, settle it in your heart, because I'm telling you the time is coming. The persecution of the church is at hand, at least in our country. It's always been in other places of the world, but it's coming to a, a theater near you, and it's going to be knocking on your door. It reminded me before I got into the study tonight of a song written many years ago in 1983 when I was a young Christian disc jockey and uh, there was a, 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 a married couple out there who was very famous at the time, and um, Steve and Annie Chapman, and they had a song, and I would encourage you to look it up on YouTube and listen to it. It's called As For Me In My House. I think it was prophetic. I listened to it before tonight's study, and I was uh, brought to tears, really, because that time is here. That time is here. You know, I've been teaching the Bible for many, 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 many years. And I've always believed, my eschatology has always been that we are at the door. I knew that, but I have to admit, deep in my inner self and deep in the deepest parts of my heart and of my thinking, even though I wanted to see the coming of the Lord, even though I wanted to be a part of the rapture of the church, I probably didn't really believe that I would. I thought, oh, it's close, you know, but I, you know, too many things would have to happen in order for these things to come to pass. And there's not enough time, you know, in my life to see that happen. Oh, I couldn't have been more wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong. We're seeing things change at such a rate, so fast, seemingly overnight. Oh, my friends, I am so convinced that Jesus Christ is at the door. He's patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I think that he is giving the church a wake-up call. You can hope for a next great awakening all you want. I'm hoping for that one great awakening, that one get-up morning. When the Lord says, come up hither, I believe it's close. I really do. I do. I believe it with all my heart. You know, thus we want to walk biblically, level-headed, even-keeled. Let your moderation, Paul said, let it be known unto all men, you know, because they're going to need somebody who is steadfast and stable to come to when they want answers. Let it be you. Be ready to give an answer to every man who will ask of the hope that lies in you. Thus he says in verse 6 here, be careful for nothing. If you're taking note, my friend, write it down. 
be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. This verse is extremely appropriate for us today because the whole world and even great swaths of the church are now seemingly walking in direct contrast to this commandment of the Lord. Be careful for nothing. This is an interesting word in the Greek also, and in, in, in some of your Bibles it might say thoughtful, you know, as in take no thought for anything. But the word in the Greek is mirnema, and it literally means solicitude. And I, that's a very interesting word because it means to care or to have concern for something or someone. It also has this idea of being distracted because you're overly caring for someone or something. And I think this exemplifies exactly what we're seeing going on in the church today, in which there are seemingly invisible things inflicted upon the world that are this great threat. And many within the body of Christ have been given over to solicitude because of it. Because they're given over to solicitude, they are distracted uh, from their obedience to the things of God. And it supersedes their obedience to the things of God. Being overly careful for anything, my friends, will rob you of a blessing. It just will. Worry and fear are distractions that will rob you of your joy in the Lord. It often reminds me of the disciples. You, you remember the story after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know. That morning the women had run to the tomb and, you know, they came back rejoicing that the Lord had risen from the grave. You know, and they were sharing this with the disciples. However, Thomas, you know, he blew off that, that report. He said, oh, it's hogwash. There's no way. I saw him. I saw him crucified. You know, there's no way. He was dead. He didn't believe it. In fact, he said, unless I see with my own eyes and put my fingers into his wound, I will not believe. <laughs> so for the week following the resurrection, Jesus had been fellowshipping with the other disciples. He had been rejoicing with the disciples. And, you know, basically, I, I always thought of it as having a pretty good time. <laughs> you know, yet during that week when everybody else was being blessed by the presence of the risen Lord, Thomas, because of his unbelief, was cowering in his home, probably waiting for them to come and arrest him you know, for being a disciple. And then one day he went up to the upper room with the rest of them. No doubt they had been telling him, man, the Lord's been here. You should have been here. And then all of a sudden it says Jesus appears. And Thomas, of course, you know, he, he was a, a skeptic and, and certainly had walked in unbelief. But man, when he saw the Lord... The first words from his mouth was, my God, you know, my Lord and my God. You know, and he stepped from his 
fearfulness and his cowardice into a moment of believing. Jesus said, Thomas, you believe because you have seen, but they're blessed are those who have never seen and yet still believe. My point has always been the same over all the years that I've taught through that passage. My point has always been Thomas wasted the entire week of his life feeling miserable when he could have been rejoicing with the rest of them. You know, Paul said, be careful for nothing. What's nothing mean, my friends? It means nothing. Be careful for nothing. Don't worry about things. Don't be overly concerned. But if you do find yourself, my friends, if you find yourself in that position of temptation to being fearful, the answer to it and the cure for it is prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Notice that Paul said, in contrast to the cares that can come upon us, he said, in everything by prayer and supplication. These are always, you know, that this is the way that we battle uh, the things of our lives, the things that concern us, the fears that come upon us. You know, they're not a last resort, but they always should be first and last resort. They are the most powerful weapons that we have to combat fear and concern. Once I've taken my problems to Christ, once I have entered into prayer and supplication, and I leave it with him, and I emphasize leave it with him, I leave it in those most competent hands, and I'm at that moment able to turn my back on the cares that are trying to consume me because I know I've done all that I can do and the very best that I can do is to take it to Christ and to leave it with Him knowing and then commit yourself to His care. You know, He will take care of me. I, this last week has been so powerful for me personally. Uh, and in the place that I was at for, you know, basically a week, it was pretty close to a week, because a, a, a thousand things run through your mind when you don't know, when you're in that position of uncertainty. And those of you who have found yourself on the uh, bad side of a diagnosis, you know what I'm talking about. When you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I pray for you that at that time it was prayer and supplication with thanksgiving in the Lord that saw you through. I've heard more testimonies than I can count that that is a fact, that those who have come out the other side of those things in victory are those who have simply committed it to Christ and, and, and walked away leaving it in his competent hands and said, whatever will, whatever his will is for my life just as Jesus did himself when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his death. He knew what was at hand. And yet he said, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And he knew what that meant. He knew it meant the cross. He knew it meant extreme suffering. He knew it. And yet he submitted himself to the will of the Father. That's where you and I need to be. 
I'm thankful that I'm able to make my request known unto God. And he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I hope that's where you're at tonight, my friends. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you're taking note, make note of that. You know, if you're suffering with cares at the reading of this verse tonight, if Philippians 4, 6 is something in, to which you are not walking in victory at this moment, notice that Paul coupled it with a promise. And that promise is found here in verse 7. That promise is that if you will be careful for nothing, if you'll follow that instruction, and if you will simply lay aside the fear, whatever that fear is, having committed it to the hands of God and the keeping of yourself, body, soul, and spirit, if you'll do that through prayer and supplication, giving thanks to the Lord, then he promises that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will be yours. What did Paul mean by that? You know, that you'll have the peace of God that passes understanding. What did he mean? Well, personally, I'm convinced that he, uh, he meant that it's not that you don't or won't understand the peace of God. But when you're walking in the peace of God, having given everything to the Lord and, you know, done what you're supposed to do, and you're now walking seemingly care carelessly, when you're doing that, those who see you doing it will not understand <laughs> your peace that you have in Christ. They're not going to get it, you know. They're going to see the turmoil that you've been through, and, and they're going to think that you should be concerned. You should be worried. You should be doing the things that those who are fearful do. And yet, you're walking over coals of fire. You're, you're walking through the heat of the moment, and yet seemingly with no care for your own safety or no care for the things of this world, yet you are trusting solely in the grace and in the sovereignty of God, and they're going to look at you like you're crazy. And they're going to say, we don't understand that whatsoever. Thus, if you will walk in courageous fearlessness in the things of God, he says, you will have the peace of God that, that passes all understanding. You know, because you're walking in the peace of God, that peace shall keep your hearts and mind, he said. You know, fear is up here. <laughs> That's where it's at. You know, and he says the peace of God will keep your hearts and mind. And mind. Hmm. Perfect peace has he whose mind is stayed on thee. Wow. That's where we want to be, my friends, especially in this time. That seems to be a time of fear. A time that has come upon the world and the church. We want to walk in the peace of God that surpasses understanding. And when you do that, the peace of God will, will give you peace of mind also. Look at verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, 
Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. If you're taking note, underline that, think on these things. Make note of that. Isn't it amazing how Paul knew the simple meme that we understand today, garbage in, garbage out. What I mean by that is that we are victims often of the things that we tell ourselves or in the case of today, the things that other people tell us. Consider, if you will, the entire social news media of today. I remember listening to a sermon way back in the 80s. I believe it was Pastor Chuck uh, who was teaching on this very same passage. Uh, and he began to point out the, the negative message that the major news outlets of that time and that era were thrusting upon the people and the impact that it was having upon the children of God and how it brought about a culture of negativity and violence. That was in the early 80s. I agreed with him then. But I can tell you that it is a thousand times fold truer today than it was that at that time. I remember back in the early, early 90s, I was in a pastor's conference uh, in Marietta Hot Springs, Calvary Chapel guys. And it was early in the internet period, you know, when people were getting up their websites. And I remember standing with a group of pastors and they were all talking about the internet. You know, it was a new thing and a new opportunity of ministry, they said. And I remember one of them looking over at me and they said, well, you know, does, does you know, Calvary Chapel Zanesville have a website? And I go, yeah, yeah, we got one. I'm just not sure how I feel about it. And one of the guys went, what are you, what are you talking about? I said, well, I can't really reconcile it with Scripture, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm having a hard time with it. Well, what are you talking about? It's a great opportunity to preach the gospel. I said, well, that, yeah, I know. But what James says in his book is truer than anything to me because that's the word of God. He said that you cannot get salt water and fresh water from the same spigot. I said, brothers, how can we as a church, you know, put the word of God online and within the space of one click, you can have the most ungodly debauchery that the devil has ever brought upon the face of the earth right before your very eyes. Thus, that screen becomes a spigot of both fresh and salt water. They thought I was crazy. They, they, they literally got upset with me because I said such a thing. And yet, today we see such a thing. You know, listen, I, I understand that there's, there's big pluses uh, through the web. We're using the web right now, tonight, you know, and I'm preaching the gospel, and I'm sure some people will hear, and some people will get saved, and people will be encouraged in their walk with the Lord. But others will simply turn over and do that click and will continue in the debauchery. I don't know how to reconcile that. I have to admit, it's a hard one. But that's the time in which we are living. You know, Paul, though, it's, uh, 
He knew that. He knew that it was garbage in, garbage out. That's really my point. My point is, is that whatever you pour into yourself, that's what's going to be produced. You know, well, let me read you a verse. This is in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, that which is good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Now I realize that the context of this passage is really a dealing with, uh, I believe personally, the election of God. But I do think that we can make application of it in that whatever we you know, draw from, that is, Whatever we have placed in our hearts will dictate our words and our actions. You know, in Proverbs 4.23, Solomon told us to keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So you're to guard your heart, my friends. Watch it. Watch what you allow to be planted in it. This is why Paul said, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, if, if you read those things carefully, you will notice that every one of them is an attribute found in the person of Jesus Christ. They're attributes of his nature. They exemplify who Jesus really is. Thus, if I stay focused on the Lord, on the things of the Lord, then my heart is being filled with good things. And even in the midst of a trying situation, in the midst of my prayers and supplications, I will be drawing upon those things which are of a good source that have been planted deep within my heart, the things which will bring me to that place of rejoicing in the Lord. But if my source of input has been nothing but nightly news, Facebook, Twitter, and the such like, or even worse, the abundance of negative things you see, the evil things, they're going to produce a mind and a heart that are not focused on the Lord and will bring about a bad belief and bad actions and reactions. Verse 9, he says, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Man, I love Paul. I love how he just drives it here. Just throws these statements out there and says, here you go. You want the peace of God? Do what I do. <laughs> I've always found it interesting that Paul did exactly the opposite of what I've seen so many Christians say or do even. I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard preachers say, well, don't look at me. You know, don't look at me. Don't follow me. You know. And I have to admit, when I watch them and I see the stuff that they say and do, I would agree. Don't do what they do. Don't, don't do it. Even Jesus said that about the Pharisees, you know. He said, well, you can listen to them, but don't do what they do. <laughs> you know, do what they say. Don't do what they do. Because their actions are so different than what they say. But that wasn't Paul. Paul didn't say it. Paul, 
said those things which you have learned, which you have received, the things that you have heard me say, and you've seen me do, do the same. Brethren, and the God of peace shall be with you. Paul threw himself out there as, a, as an example. Not because he was just preaching it. He said, the things that you've seen me do, you know, the things that you've watched me do, you've, you've seen the word of God in action in my life. I'm sure Paul was a normal man. I am totally convinced of that. Paul was convinced of his own wretchedness. You remember he said, speaking of Jesus Christ, he said, who came to save sinners of whom I am chief. He didn't say of whom I was. He said of whom I am. I'm convinced that Paul was a normal guy. I'm convinced that Paul had his own failures. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that Paul was just a normal man who was extraordinarily empowered by the Holy Spirit to do extraordinary things. But he was a normal guy. And that's the way God operates. Thus, Paul was no, uh, you know, as they were the, the old, uh, uh, you know, the painters of the Renaissance, you know, would paint the saints. You know, they always put that little halo over their head. I always thought that was just ridiculous because that's the way they saw them. These were the, like, make them out to be gods, you know. No, no, they weren't. They were like you and me. They were knuckleheads, and that's why God used them because it's always God. You know, I thank God that they were normal because there's hope for you and me. Paul was a normal guy, and yet he was able to say, the things that I've said, the things that I've taught you, the things that you have learned from me, because you've seen me do them, imitate that. Do that, and the God of peace will be with you. <laughs> Paul simply lived what he believed. Ah, oh, there's the key. He, he lived what he believed, and it lived out in his life by the things that he did. He didn't think more highly of himself than he should. He, he, he understood his own vulnerability. He understood his own wretchedness. Yet, the things that he taught pointed to the sufficiency of Christ. The things that he said declared the sovereignty of God. And the things and the way that he lived declared his dependency upon all the former. And how his total dependency upon nothing but Jesus is what gave him the great peace in the middle of tribulation. Which is where he was at when he wrote this. Thus, he didn't say it arrogantly. He wasn't lifting himself up to be anything. He was simply stating the fact that those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. My friends, is the God of peace with you tonight? You know, if you're listening to this statement, you know, this sermon by radio, where do you stand with Jesus? Maybe you've claimed the name of Christ all your life. Maybe you are like those people in Matthew 7. You, you, know, you, you say, Lord, Lord, and you've done many wonderful things this life. But you know, you know that your life is a double standard. You know that you say one thing and do something else. Have you ever led anybody to Jesus Christ? Have you ever been used in a way that would let you know that your life is where it needs to be. You see, God won't use vessels that he cannot use. You know, he doesn't use double-tongued people. He doesn't use double-minded men. He just doesn't. He uses men and women who are steadfast, 
confidently clinging to all that Jesus Christ has done. They're not arrogant. They're not pointing to their own righteousness. Certainly not. But they're pointing to the righteousness of Christ. And it shows in their life and it shows in the things that they do. They're servants of God. Is that your, is that your testimony, my friend? Is that where you're at tonight? Listen, everybody, if you're a Christian, everybody has a story. You know, the Bible says even though a man might stumble seven times, he, he'll rise again. The Lord's able to make him stand. We're not talking about it, whether you've made mistakes or not. Everybody has made mistakes. Everybody has stumbled in their walk at one time or another. But are you steadfast in your trusting in the sovereignty and in the things of Jesus Christ? Is God using you, my friends, in this time of great need for preachers? Are you like that tree that's not producing fruit? Or are you abundantly filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit and bringing forth much fruit? Listen, Jesus said, you know, you will bring forth fruit. Your fruit will be abundant and your fruit will remain. That was a promise that Jesus made if you're genuinely born again. But just calling yourself a Christian, just claiming the name of Christ is not genuinely being born again. It is a life that is changed. If any man be in Christ, the Bible tells us he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And then you become a tree that is fruitful. You know, if you go to an orange tree, you get oranges. If you go to an apple tree, you get apples. If you go to a Christian tree, you should get other Christians. Have you led anybody to the Lord? Listen, my friends, if you've never given your life to Christ, I want to encourage you this evening. You know, there's the ABCs of salvation we call, you know, uh, you just simply have to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you're in need of a Savior. And my friends, there is a judgment coming upon this earth that you do not want to be a part of. Jesus said it's not his will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. You acknowledge that you're a sinner. Believe, be on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and you shall be saved. Confess with your mouth that he is the Son of God and that God has raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. It's that simple. So I encourage you, you know, to ask the Lord for forgiveness. Repent, the Bible says. Change your mind. Turn from your sin and turn to the ever-living God, which is Jesus Christ, and, and receive the salvation which is by grace alone. And if you have been playing with God, my friends, if you're simply playing with the name Christian, then I encourage you, quit that. Get serious about your walk with the Lord. And allow the Holy Spirit, beg the Lord, get on your face before God, if that is your testimony, and ask Him for the empowering and for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that you might live the type of exemplary life that Paul the Apostle did, so that you too might be able to turn to others at any given point and say, do what I do, brethren, and the God of peace shall be with you. I think every Christian who's genuinely born again and empowered with the Holy Spirit should be able to say that, not arrogantly, no but trustingly, knowing that it's Jesus' righteousness, that it's Jesus' everything that he is, everything that he's done. The Bible says, as he is, so are we in this present world. It's him I'm pointing to. It's him that doeth the works. It's him that I have yielded to. Thus, I can tell other people, listen, in spite of me, in spite of my sin, in spite of my failures, do as I do, my friends. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the God of peace shall be with you. Amen. I pray that's what you will be able to say.
God bless you, my friends. I'm glad to be back behind the pulpit, and I'll tell you what, I'm excited about Sunday, and I hope to see you at Calvary Chapel, Newark, and uh, keep us in prayer. Uh, keep the Lord, uh, just keep me up to, just keep me lifted up to him, if you will, that he will empower me to speak boldly and to speak accurately and clearly about the things of Jesus Christ as we approach this final and, and most important time in history when the great coming of Jesus Christ is at hand and the snatching away of the church and the final trumpet is sounded. God bless you. I'll see you next time.